scalability is something that, you know, as you fix one thing, another thing needs to be addressed. It's like you look through this entire funnel and see where the bottlenecks are. And usually bottlenecks occur at different parts. Any changes you make might give you one to two months of breathing room, maybe three months of breathing room. But you have to constantly change. To be honest, if people knew how overwhelming it is to build and scale a SaaS product, I don't think anyone would start because if they had all that knowledge early on, they would not want to take that risk and plunge in. I'm Krish Ramanini, co-founder and CEO at Fireflies.ai. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Krish Ramanini dreamed of a tool to assist you with your meetings by recording and transcribing your conversations. All this and more on Code Story. Krish Ramanini grew up in Silicon Valley, observing tech all around him. But what really excited him was the innovation happening in the last five years. He used to play sports as a kid, tennis, baseball, etc., and he was always excited about filming his games or practice and analyzing how he executed the craft. He brings his analytical frame of mind into his current venture and still plays some sports, lifts weights, and tracks his nutrition on the side. Krish went through meetings like we all do, conducting a meeting with expensive team members and then forgetting most of the conversation afterwards. He decided he wanted to figure out a way to remember every conversation he had and unlock the hidden metrics behind meetings. This is the creation story of Fireflies.ai. Fireflies, in a nutshell, is an AI meeting assistant. It joins your meetings across major video conferencing platforms like Zoom, WebEx, Microsoft Teams, Google Meet. And it records, transcribes, and generates notes from those meetings. And it'll also analyze your meetings and tell you what the sentiment was on the call, who spoke for how long on the call, uh, what sort of topics were being discussed. And our whole goal was to unlock all of this hidden information and uncover knowledge inside conversations. When you have other sorts of means of communication, let's say emails or messages, you can always go back, right? You can see an email you sent two years ago. But a meeting, if it's very expensive, right? Getting multiple people in a meeting room, it's very expensive. And then when you leave that meeting, 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, you forgot everything you discussed. So the origin story was, how can I remember every conversation I've ever had and have like perfect recall? And how can I go back to something I discussed two years ago you know, I had a meeting with Noah two years ago. I want to know what, what our thoughts were on playing tennis, right? And I can jump to that exact moment in time and remember everything. So that was really the inspiration for starting Fireflies. Let's dive into the MVP. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take you to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So we had multiple iterations before we even started the current version of Fireflies as it is. We did like seven or eight different side projects in the past. But what was interesting before we started on this path of building this AI meeting assistant was, hey, we've been writing a lot of code on all these other projects. We're spending three, four months. 
they're not really taking off. So we need to validate if what we're going to be working on is actually something that we should spend time. So me and my co-founder, Sam, decided before we wrote even a single line of code, we would build a human in the loop system. People would hire an on-demand note taker person, like a real person. And that person would join the meeting and they would be a fly on the wall and write notes and afterwards send an email of the notes. And we would charge for that service. And we did this for a couple months, very, very early before we even wrote a few lines of code. We would even charge for it and then get like people to pay like quite a good amount of money. And then we realized, wow, this is actually something people are willing to pay for. Now the hard part is how do we build it and fully automate it so that there's no human in the loop, right? There's some companies that took like the virtual assistant route, but that is a really expensive process. And even back when we started 2018, 2019, transcription was very, very expensive. And natural language processing wasn't quite as good as what it is today. So there were technological hurdles, but we believe as like product-oriented founders, that's a much more sizable problem that we could tackle versus trying to create artificial demand for something that people aren't interested in. So yeah, I would still say that was our very first MVP, no lines of code, just building a business that was around people, email, and joining video calls. You kind of touched at a high level on some of these, but I want to know about the decisions and trade-offs you had to make, the big ones around you know, not writing a line of code, or even maybe the version after that where you started to build it. You know, how did you cope with those decisions when you were making them? One of the biggest lessons I learned from starting Fireflies was that if you chase really good ideas, that's not always going to lead to good businesses. And so people list out crazy ideas that they want to work on. It's maybe because they're excited about the technology or maybe they're excited about the latest, hottest trend on the market. You know, a few years ago, everyone was trying to do an Uber for X. You press a button and you get flowers delivered. You press a button and then a car comes. So there were a lot of like companies that were oriented around that. So for the longest time, we were chasing good ideas and cool technology. Whereas the best companies, I really believe, come from solving really hard problems. For us, like the problem of staying on top of all of our communication, we're having dozens of meetings every week. We're talking to investors, we're talking to customers, and there was no way for me to remember all that. And so instead of saying, hey, this is a cool idea, let's try to do it, or this is a really neat piece of technology, let's try to implement something. We were inspired by, this is a really big problem, and it is a problem worth solving, even if it is very difficult and we may not fully solve it. So when we chase great problems that are in our own life, we're able to come up with, I think, really good businesses. I think this was the case for many of the other startups. For us, like the trade-offs were, okay, how do we build this? How do we make this affordable? Because we want to democratize AI. We want to give every single person an AI meeting assistant. But back then, the cost of transcription was a dollar per minute, meaning people would have to pay literally $60 for a one-hour meeting. The value add wasn't quite there. Today, we were able to get Fireflies down to where you can have all your meetings transcribed and summarized, fully automated. You can play back. All of those will be saved in the cloud for you to review. And our subscriptions like $10 to $20. So it took a long time to go from $60 a meeting to $10 to $20 for, let's say, you're having 50 meetings a month, right? So there was a lot of technology and thought that was put in saying our constant goal was how do we make this system more and more affordable for our end users? 
Okay, you got you got your MVP. Let's progress forward. How did you progress the product and mature it? And I'm curious about, you know, how you build your roadmap and how you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. Once we were able to validate that this is a problem that we wanted to solve, we put together an MVP, we, t- we took off-the-shelf tools, and we just basically packaged a lot of things in the early days just to see, like, can we automate the technology? Back then, the accuracy wasn't perfect, and reliability is always a challenge because now you're building this real-time streaming technology, right? So to join meetings and have it stream and process, there was a lot of overhead in the early days. But we were able to validate it with a handful of customers. Then we raised our first round of capital uh, in 2019, end of 2019. That was our first seed round of uh, capital. From there, we were able to actually build out our team from three people to 10 people and then build the entire platform from scratch with all the lessons we learned during the beta. And we completely ripped up, uh, up everything and built it from the ground up. We tried not to use off-the-shelf tools and instead focused on building something that could scale. Because Fireflies works great if there's 10 simultaneous meetings happening. It works fine when there's 100. But what happens when there's 1,000 simultaneous meetings happening? What happens when there's 10,000 simultaneous calls that are happening? So we had to build for scale. That was probably like one of the biggest challenges for us. And we had to also figure out how do we reduce our cost of compute? Because joining meetings and processing all that data is very, very expensive. So we had to continuously think about the tools we used, platforms, writing code in a very efficient manner, using alternatives where possible to reduce costs. So this whole scaling process that happened, slowly we ended up building this massive moat, right, of defensibility, because as you're starting to support more and more users, you start building tips and tricks and lessons that help you scale. So that was a big learning and realization for us over the last two years, because once the pandemic hit, we just launched in January 2020 and things went crazy. Like there was a lot of demand for the first time after all these years of trying different products and uh, projects and creating ideas. This was the first time things were taking off and we had no idea how to prepare ourselves for scale and the incoming demand. So I always think of entrepreneurship as you need to jump out of a plane but your parachute is not fully built. You need to figure out how to build it before you land. And that's exactly what we had to do. We had to learn on the fly. That's what, you know, growing and fixing things at scale looks like. Okay, well, let's switch to team then. So tell me about how you built your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? The most important thing that I've learned now, maybe that I didn't prioritize earlier, was the energy and the intensity that someone brings is way more important because experience and skills help, but those are things that can be learned over time. And those that are able to iterate very, very quickly, learn from their mistakes and don't have to be micromanaged are going to be the best employees. They're gonna be fun to work with because when you talk about an idea, you talk about like a project, you talk about a problem and how to solve it, right? They're coming up with solutions. And when you look away and you come back the next week, that thing is addressed and you can focus on a next layer of challenges. The most difficult type of folks to deal with are those that are inherently have a lot of potential, but don't necessarily want to change their ways or put in additional energy. That's like something that I've learned through hiring. And you can tell that within the first two interviews itself, 
Like, what type of person are they? And how, what type of commitment do they bring? We're a fully remote organization. We have almost 100 people in over 15 countries. And when you're a remote organization, you have to self-manage. And no one's looking over your shoulder or seeing if you're showing up on time. You have to just make sure things are getting done. We, Like I said, we're analytical. We measure every piece of work that gets done, how much work everyone is doing. But that's more to inform us if someone is not really up to par. But usually with the great employees, you don't even have to worry about that data because you'll see the results right then and there. You don't have to go back and look at those reports. So I think that my biggest lesson was skill and experience are good, but the hustle, the energy, the uh, curiosity to learn are far more valuable. So let's flip the scalability then. So I understand the, the, you know, the immediate model was more hands than code. So I understand the scalability there. But past that, did you build this to scale efficiently from that first period? Or have you been fighting this as you grow and gain traction? You have to do it every single day. Scalability is something that, you know, as you fix one thing, another thing needs to be addressed. It's like you look through this entire funnel and see where the bottlenecks are. And usually bottlenecks occur at different parts. Any changes you make might give you one to two months of breathing room, maybe three months of breathing room. But you have to constantly change. To be honest, if people knew how overwhelming it is to build and scale a SaaS product, I don't think anyone would start. Because if they had all that knowledge early on, they would not want to take that risk and plunge in. The reality is we went in, we were pretty naive. We were these uh, 20-something you know, college grads with very little experience, real-world experience, when we dived head first. And we were like, why not? Like, you know, this is something that should exist. If it did, you know, you would have seen like companies like Microsoft and Google probably thinking about building AI assistance for meetings, right? Like it just seems so obvious. But the challenge is how do you build this platform to support so many different types of meetings, types of customers, and make it really reactive in real time? It was partly like we didn't know what we were signing up for. And if people knew that, I'm sure they wouldn't have started in the first place. So best way to cope is to say, okay, you know, this is like a problem. How do we mitigate this? How do we like create time for ourselves? How do we start setting up processes in place so that these sort of problems don't occur in the future? And it's a constant like trial, error, lesson learned, uh, iterate, pivot, and you got to keep doing that. This is even for your product as a whole. You have to look at every feature and think about product market fit. So a lot of times people think about product market fit as, okay, I just need to find product market fit for my company or my SaaS product. But reality is, I think every feature deserves to have that same level of scrutiny because you might build a platform where certain things are adopted, but they might not be ever using certain features you build. You have to then ask yourself, do I need to sunset that feature? Is it not valuable? Why haven't I found product market fit for that specific feature? And who is my customer? How do I change things or should I just remove it? This is what Apple does so well, right? They keep things simple. They also remove a lot of things where there's not a lot of traction happening. Amazon was also a great example of this. They keep doing so many different experiments. One thing they did back in the day was like a fire phone, like a phone uh, that didn't really take off. So they learned from that and they iterated to something else. So I'm sure like behind Alexa, there were many iterations and many trials and errors before AWS they were probably having lots of trials and errors of different products before the, the Kindle. So there's just 
constant uh, evolution uh, that is required before you get to that end state. And that's what I call product market fit. So, Krish, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I am extremely proud of the ability to get people from many different countries to work together on a singular vision and bring that diversity uh, into building something that I'm very passionate about. I get to work on a problem space that I'm genuinely passionate about, that I care about. I think that's a blessing and we're very grateful for that. Some days with entrepreneurship, you're like, why am I even doing this? This is so crazy. Like I have to like work 10, 15 hours a day and I there is no work-life balance. Like, so you get all of those. But then when you see a customer say, Fireflies is like changing my life or this is game changing. It's helping me and be very, very productive. That really inspires us. And then what also inspires me now most is like the people on my team. That helps me want to keep staying up to date and train myself and better myself. So it's really about focusing on my team and then my customers. And that really is something I'm proud of, that we have a chance to build something. Because in this day and age, there's hundreds of thousands of applications out there. Everyone is vying for your attention. So how can you get 1% of that attention from the millions of apps and SaaS solutions out there? So to be able to get there has been a very exciting, exciting journey. And then to be able to go anywhere and have people mention, oh, I've used Fireflies and I don't even know these people, that is a cherry on top. I was at the US Open a few weeks ago and I was sitting uh, in the stands and there was someone next to me. They're like, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, we have this uh, tool that joins your meetings and takes notes. They're like, oh, is that Firefly? I've actually used it. That was like very, very uh, exciting and it made me really happy. And so those are the things I'm very proud of. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I believe one of the biggest challenges that we had was thinking about how do we price for scale? So there's a lot of competitive products out there that were pricing hundreds of dollars per month per single user. And we had to try to think about different ways to price to help everyone in an organization use it. Like we're not just a tool that your execs use or just your like sales team uses. It's a platform that every single person can use. So for a long time, you know, we felt like utility pricing could be great for certain aspects, right, where you charge per minute. But that causes a lot of worry for people because they want to just keep using the platform as much as they can and not worry about overages. And, you know, this used to happen with cell phones in the past, right? Oh, you've exceeded your talk time. You need to you're going to be paying overages per minute. So in the early days, because the technology was so expensive, we priced based on utility. But in reality, Our product was way more successful when we said, okay, here's a flat price and uh, you're going to get X amount of minutes per month. And that for 95% of our customers, that's more than enough. So we have unlimited transcription for your Zoom and video conferencing calls and your dialer uh, telephony calls. So that's been really awesome to be able to say, okay, let's price at a fair price. And they don't have to worry about all these like little things about minutes and overages and all of that. So we were hesitant for a long time because we were afraid like some person was going to come in and abuse the crap out of the platform and use it way too much. Right. And it would cost us more than it would to support them. 
But I think it was the right decision. And when we looked at the data, we found that for 95% of users, uh, this was the right process. And it also made the buying process a lot easier. They don't have to think about too many things. They're like, okay, great. I pay $15 per month. Okay, I pay like $20 per month. Uh, this is what I get. That's that's awesome. Like I, I can just uh, swipe my credit card and buy right now. So this is always fun, Chris. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? So the future for Fireflies is how do we not just help you be productive after a meeting, but during the meeting itself? So what are things we can do and make Fireflies more proactive during the meeting? So while you're having the meeting, can Fireflies write down real-time notes? Can Fireflies complete actions in other applications? Can you press a button while you're listening to a call and say, oh, that was interesting. Let me bookmark that. And right then and there, Fireflies bookmarks it and then sends it to your Slack channel. Can Fireflies fill out your CRM? Like we do that today. We push your notes and summaries afterwards to your like Salesforce. So if you're a salesperson, you don't have to take notes anymore. Fireflies does it for you. But can I do that while the meeting itself is happening? Can I provide coaching while the meeting is happening? Like, oh, they just brought up a competitor. Here's what you need to discuss about our product versus the competitor. Or they brought up this question. Here's how to answer that question. So I'm really excited about a future where Fireflies is helping you in real time and not just post-meeting where you're using it as a way to recall all of your conversations. Let's switch to you, Krish. Who, who influences the way that you work? Name a person or multiple people or something that you look up to and why. It's hard to pinpoint a specific person I would just generally say the community, the Saster community is fantastic. I think what Jason Lemkin put out there for a lot of startups like that were early on, it was incredible guidance. And so that really was a very awesome opportunity to learn and build uh, based on some of the feedback. Like, cause I didn't know much about sales. I didn't know much about venture capital. I didn't know what were some benchmarks you have to hit in order to uh, fundraise. So I think Saster and Jason Lemkin have done a wonderful job for early stage founders to learn more. I also really like uh, some of the CEOs who've built these really durable companies in a very capital efficient uh, way. The founders of Zapier, Wade over there, the Expensify founder, uh, David. So like all of these guys, they've been very fantastic and they try to bust all the myths of what it means to be a venture backed company and some of the things that people fall into. So they've been very disciplined and I love how they were able to build these large companies with great capital efficiency. Calendly is another great example. They only raised $500,000 as a check uh, for one of their first rounds. And in a market where people are raising 50 million, hundreds of millions of dollars, that was incredible discipline where they raised 500K and now they're at 70 million ARR runway. So I like those founders, those people that have built it the hard way without taking crazy amounts of capital. And that discipline definitely motivates me and helps me learn. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider maybe taking a different approach? Early days, I wish we could have solved some of the technological breakthroughs sooner. Because we always think about, wow, we have this great advantage now. But if we had changes sooner, right, like the in increase in transcription accuracy, the reduction in costs, I wish we had done that sooner. Or it sounds like a no-brainer now, but 18 months ago, we didn't think these were possible. So 
There's a lot of things that I would do around scale and optimization and price reduction, like in cost, uh, like building out efficiency that could have helped us tremendously. Another thing that I would do is probably more conscientious of taking advice. We would take advice from multiple people and everyone would have different advice or pieces of information that they would share that would be contradicting. And that was very, very difficult because we were running around in circles. We should have taken a stand. We should have gone out and proved it out faster versus listening to someone saying, no, you need to sell top-down enterprise. Another person saying, oh, you need to only sell to a specific vertical. Another person saying, you need to build a company only in Silicon Valley. Obviously, all three things we don't do. We did the complete opposite of that and we're okay. So I think advice is subjective and you have to do things your own way and figure it out and fail on your own terms. So that's another thing. I think we would have saved easily six months if we didn't take the wrong advice. Last question, Chris, and I'm curious if it'll be similar advice because I really like that, uh, what you just said, but I'm going to ask anyway. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it and they can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice would you give them having gone down this road a bit? Two pieces of advice that I really like to think about. One is that when you're building technology, constraints are really important. That's what helps you drive innovation. When you have no constraints, you can do things, but that's what I call art. But to build technology and to build startups, you need to have natural constraints, natural barriers in terms of what the technology can do, what your team can do, and how much time you have to deploy uh, to market. The bar is a lot higher today for an MVP than it was before. So you have to draw a box around what it is that you want to sell and what it is that you want to really do well and do that. Instead of doing 20 different things, do the one or two things really, really well. That's the most important thing because it's easy to uh, chase many different shiny objects, but that's not what you want to do. The other thing is don't get so obsessed about like the trend or the idea. So if you think of it as like the gold rush and you're the last person going into the gold rush and there's no more gold and you're disappointed saying, oh, you know, I missed I missed the boat and now I can't do anything. If only I was there a couple of years earlier, if only I knew about this sooner. But that's not how innovation works, right? Innovation creates a new gold rush in a new field every time. And it's your job to find that innovation because usually it's hard to catch trends. Either you're going to catch it way too early in the beginning where there's not a lot of adoption or you catch it way too at the end when everyone is doing it, right? So I talked about the Uber example of everyone doing press a button, get delivery. You don't know and hindsight bias is 2020. So what I would like to say is that instead of chasing the trends, focus on creating your own opportunities and instead trusting the innovation and building, putting constraints around what you do. I love that. That's great advice. Well, Chris, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Fireflies. Thank you, Noah. I had a lot of fun and it was awesome. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 